Welcome to this episode of the Chew Creek Podcast. This week, I got the opportunity to sit down with Jason Stagno, who is currently working for the National Institute of Health. There's a lot to learn from this guy. As we talk about his experiences so far, we also got to talk about his conversation with Francis Collins, who wrote a book I enjoyed called Language of God. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating to help this ministry thrive. How has this global quarantine time been treating you? Uh, yeah, it's getting getting to be pretty long here, but you know, as weird as it sounds, it's actually been quite good for me. And I say that with a bit of remorse because uh, I know how much others have been suffering, you know, due to, due to the pandemic. But um, I'm incredibly blessed to work for the greatest organization in the world, the National Institutes of Health, uh, which treats its employees exceptionally well. And uh, our director, Francis Collins, um, is one of my greatest heroes. Uh, his book, Language of God, is one of my favorites. Um, I actually had the pleasure of having lunch with him as a birthday present last year, uh, which my wife magically arranged. I'm not what? sure how she, he's my director, but I never get to see him. So um, <laughs> he has like, I don't know how many tens of thousands of employees. So, yeah. uh, but with respect to my research, you know, it's, it's completely halted as it is for most of my field, um, except for those who might have SARS-CoV-2 related projects. Um, however, you know, under normal circumstances, my time spent at the bench versus the time at my desk fluctuates quite dramatically uh, depending on the stages of projects. COVID-19 hit right at the time when I had a pile of manuscripts to write. So now I have all the time in the world, so to speak, to write, you know, with no distractions from lab work or my boss or trainees. Um, Now my kids can be a distraction at times, um, (laughs) but working from home has allowed me to get some, you know, quite a bit of work done Mm -hmm. and uh, still spend lots of time with my family. So so it's actually been quite enjoyable, but um, I am getting a little restless, ready to get get back out yeah, um, think, into the real the normal world yeah i think everybody's at that point now where it's just like come on let's go <laughs> yep, yep. yeah what's your uh, home office look like um it's kind of set up in my bedroom i have like a little alcove in okay. the master bed um so i've got a desk and you know i have brought my big linux machine home with me from work because um, okay. that thing is got 48 processors in it so oh, <laughs> yeah and I got a nice uh, nice widescreen uh, monitor it's, uh, I don't even know how big it is but awesome. yeah so um, lots of writing lots of data processing and then kids coming in once in a while playing dolls and stuff while I'm working <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's kind of a fun balance though at least like kids coming in and <laughs> hanging out and yeah. keeping it interesting yeah no at work it's like my colleagues or my boss coming in all the time but <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> different type of distraction <laughs> yeah. Yeah. at least this distraction you could say hey go go outside <laughs> right yeah you can't really say that to your boss <laughs> right well it doesn't really work so well with my four-year-old either but you yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I worked at uh, Bureau of Land Management, my boss would come in, my head boss would come in a lot of times, but it was like a good distraction for me because he always had like stories to tell. So I was like, yeah, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> 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 Kept work interesting. <laughs> Definitely. What was your conversation with Francis Collins like? It was really all over the place, um, as you can imagine, because, you know, it was a complete surprise. Like my wife made it, you know, such that it was just she and I going to breakfast and then in walks Francis Collins and I'm like what the heck <laughs> yeah so as, after I kind of got my wits back I you know started just asking him a lot of questions about science and faith yeah he's he's a great guy very solid you know church goer he's in a bible study and as you can imagine in his position where he's balancing the NIH and his political appointment, you know, reporting to the president. He's got a lot on his shoulder, especially at this time. Not quite as much as uh, Anthony Fauci, but mm-hmm. uh, with COVID. But he's, um, yeah, he's he's definitely. I don't I don't really know how he's maintained such an incredible balance of science and faith because it's not like he's shy about his faith. You know, people know right. he believes. I mean, he founded BioLogo, so yep. the people respect him because you just. When you talk to a guy like that or see his work or read what he's written, like you can't do anything but respect the guy. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and in person, he's, you know, exactly just as you would imagine him, just very kind, very cordial, very mm-hmm. friendly, 
caring, but extremely intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'm glad you brought up his book, Language of God, because I read it last last year. And that was the mm. first time I actually heard of Franz Kahn's and I've been following him ever since. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting. I don't want to derail too much, but I had mm-hmm. I had this conversation with him about that book, and I was very gent- gently trying to um, say to him that you know when I first read the book, there were certain things that turned me off a little bit because he had uh, more of a more of a deistic approach mm-hmm. about creation, kind of like where you know, it was that God really wasn't so much involved in yeah. certain things because of the nature and random processes. And, and he, he said that, um, you know, over time in hindsight, he kind of wishes that he would have written things a little bit differently. So hmm. I was like, yeah, okay. So that makes sense. So yeah, he, he, um, I, I don't know exactly where his leanings are now, but, um, I think he's definitely sort of more in line with that, um, you know, the theistic evolutionary branch, but with, with God yeah. uh, involved in the process. And we will talk a little bit about that later in yeah. the podcast, but yeah. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I think that was definitely something that my brother and I, cause we were both reading it at this, around the same time. And that was something that we were caught off by at first too. Cause we were just like, what, why would he choose that approach? And right. I still respected him obviously, but yeah. it was just like, what why why <laughs> yeah so yeah so when i said it he's like he started to giggle and he's like you're not the first person who's pointed that out yeah. I was like, All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah no i'm sure there's because he's been since that book i'm sure he's been a lot more involved in the theology world oh uh, yeah yeah i mean that was definitely early um early on yeah know. yeah exactly so right off the bat i want to go into your background not only for me to get to know you sure but also for the listeners. So what did you study and where did you study? Just go into that. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of where I actually got around quite a bit. Um, so I spent my first year of undergrad as an engineering major uh, at Frostburg State here in Maryland. Um, and at that point in my life, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So going to a small state college was close enough to home, but still far enough away where uh, I could be out on my own and figure some things out. Um, but I ended up transferring to UMBC, uh, finished my undergrad there. Um, so UMBC is uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Mm-hmm. Um, got a bachelor's in biochemistry. Um, and then about a month after graduating, I married my beautiful wife of now 16 years. Congrats. Um, so yeah, that was like, That's boom, awesome. boom, you know, get, yeah. <laughs> graduate, get married. Um, and then uh, we had the option of staying near Baltimore because um, I was accepted into Johns Hopkins um, or uh, do something crazy and move to Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we were newlyweds and we were like, you know, let's try something dangerous, um, we went, moved to California, and I, I did my PhD at University of California, Irvine. Okay. Which is not in SoCal. Yeah. Um, so we were there for five years. Um, we moved back to Maryland after having a couple of kids in grad school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I joined the National Cancer Institute as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, I was there for three years. I had another kid. <laughs> uh, moved. I moved away from the bench for a bit after that. Um, I became a health science policy analyst uh, for NIH's Office of Science Policy, um, where I worked on issues of uh, biosafety and biosecurity. Um, I I did that for like two years, um, during which I had yet another child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, I decided that I really missed doing the research, like being at the bench Mm -hmm. um, that I was always talking about as a a policy analyst. So um, I decided to move um, away from that. And now I'm back at the National Cancer Institute uh, as an associate scientist, um, which is going on six years now. So. That's awesome. And I actually went to Frostburg State. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. Yeah. That's cool. So I got my bachelor's degree in parks and recreation management through Frostburg State. <laughs> oh, sweet. So yeah, I was. I was Are from, you from Maryland or, for, or PA? Yeah, I'm from Maryland. And so that's why Carissa right now, her and I are going through the juggle of whether we want to be in PA or be in Maryland and we love both. So (laughs) it's definitely been hard. Well, we live like 
in the in sort of the tri-state area. Okay. So like, you know, we were in Hagerstown, which you know, you go ten minutes north, you're in PA. Ten minutes south, you're in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, that's a good <laughs> so area we, to be. Yeah, so we ended up moving to West Virginia because it was only an extra ten minutes, and we get like a lot more land and a lot lower uh, property tax. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I've always loved like the little town vibes going on in Pennsylvania and yeah. I don't know, there's just something about it, <laughs> especially yep. where the brains live. I don't know if you've been to there. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and what are you currently doing as a job? You kind of went so, into yeah, this a little bit. I, I work for the National Cancer Institute, um, mm-hmm. the, the Center for Cancer Research and uh, NCI is the largest institute of the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. But more specifically, I work in the structural biophysics lab um, in the protein nucleic acid interaction section. Um, and yeah, as I said, my experience is primarily in structural biology. Uh, and this is where we use various methods to determine the three-dimensional structures of important molecules, such as proteins and RNA and kind of how they interact with one another that are involved in genetic regulation. So if you think like these molecules function as components of highly complex cellular machines, so it's, it's kind of like a car engine. You know, if you want to understand how the engine works Mm -hmm. and be able to fix it, you know, when it's broken or out of control, you need to understand what those components physically look like and how all the individual components fit and work together to carry out their respective functions. So this is the essence of structural biology. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's always been my view of science and why we need it is just yeah. for that reason is like we got to understand how it's a it's a tool. It's a tool that God allowed, you know. Yeah, I mean there's there're kind of two branches of of um, biomedical research. There's basic research and then translational research. So okay. trans, translational research is, is more on the clinical side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when I tell people I work for, for the National Cancer Institute, they immediately think, oh, so, you know, you're working on, you know, disease and patients and stuff like that. I'm like, no, I actually work on the basic research side where I'm looking at the molecules that underlie those diseases. So, gotcha. uh, you know, I'm, I'm not working in an infectious disease area. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at the very basic level trying to understand the little building blocks that um, end up giving rise or resulting in said diseases. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think that's really cool. Um, I know it takes a certain person to like doing the research. And you said that you really enjoy that side of things. Um, oh, yeah, man. <laughs> my wife, she, she always calls me a workaholic because, uh-huh. because I love doing my research (laughs) so sometimes like I'm at work and I'm like really into something and like I want to finish it and I'm like sorry hon I'm gonna be home a little bit late (laughs) not (laughs) because my boss is making me stay but it's because I want to finish this yeah so it's yeah yeah no that's awesome I love that um and so scripture teaches us in psalms that God reveals himself through his creation do you agree with this oh absolutely I mean it's right there. Uh, what is it? Psalm 19, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yep. Um, I mean, God reveals himself to us in two primary books, the Holy Scriptures and the book of nature, if you will. Um, in other words, you know, I believe wholeheartedly in special revelation, you know, for example, the Bible. Um, but equally importantly, um, I believe in God's general revelation, which is God reflected and communicated through the natural world that he so exquisitely designed and created. I love the wording that you use there. Um, yeah. Just the general revelation. I've never thought of it like that, so that's really cool. Um, how did you handle the existence of God while studying in this field? I mean, for most of my education, I didn't face too much opposition. There were, of course, some scoffers who had you know very little respect for Christians, particularly those who studying science and trying to reconcile science and God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was usually in jest and nothing too personal. Uh, most of my professors taught uh, from an evolutionary worldview, but rarely if ever brought God or religion into the picture, at least in my experience. Right. Um, so for the most part, there was little controversy between my education and science and you know what I was learning through the Bible and about theology. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there you know were points of contention that I wrestled to resolve and still do to this day. Right. Um, but the two never really affected one another in such a way that it jeopardized my faith. Um, right. In fact, as I navigated 
my journey as both a Christian and a burgeoning scientist, um, I found that the more I learned about the natural world, the more enthralled I became with its creator. And the, you know, the complexity and fine tuning of, of everything in our universe from the largest galaxies to the smallest subatomic particles uh, really is a beautiful tapestry that could only be woven by none other than an all-powerful, all-intelligent being. So um, in short, science has only strengthened my faith, uh, perhaps in ways that nothing else could. So. Yeah, for sure. I always tell people the reason why this whole podcast even started was just the fact that I was going through those struggles and I wanted people to know that it was normal. You know, it's, yeah, it's okay right. as a Christian to want to know and to question. And yeah. I, I had the uh, assumption uh, then when I was first having the doubts is like, am I just like not a Christian anymore? You know? Right. And yep. so I think one of the biggest reasons why is just I wanted to just show people like, hey, guys, it's okay to ask questions and absolutely regardless of you being a Christian. So, yeah, yep. no, I think that's really cool. Um, and as a biochemist, what is it like being a Christian in the field? Uh, I mean, to be honest, um, not as difficult as it should be. Uh, when I saw this question, I was I was a little a little worried. But, you know, what I mean by this is that, you know, I I I should be more proactive about sharing my faith. Um, and I'm sure many could say that for whatever field you're in. <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, unlike most other fields, science is, is very universal and it involves people of all different nationalities, cultures, and belief systems. I am the only white American in my lab. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it gives you a little perspective. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's culture um, differences, there's language barriers. So it's um, just their the whole Eastern versus Western mindset makes it very, very difficult. But, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's a def, it's a delicate balance. You know, if you're too quiet about your faith, then you're not sharing the gospel as we're commanded to. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're too loud about it, then people kind of write you off as some religious bigot and right. you might lose their respect. And more importantly, you might lose the opportunity to share the gospel with them in some meaningful and relational way. Yeah. But I would say, you know, with my encounters at conferences or in the lab, it's it's kind of like the don't ask, don't tell policy mm-hmm. um, where, you know, people respect you either way. You know, they know what I believe. Um, they know that I have these certain morals or standards that I live by and my boss always, I mean, I'm not trying to bra- brag on myself here, but, you know, during like group meetings and such, my boss will, will commend me, you know, like for my work ethic. And he knows that my work ethic is rooted in my faith. And so even though I'm not like directly talking to him about specific scriptures or sharing, you know, Jesus in some verbal way, he knows that the person I am in the, in the ethical behavior that, that I portray in the lab is due to my beliefs. And so hopefully that speaks volume. So I tend to take more of a relational approach to evangelism, um, or as like the great Francis of Assisi allegedly once said, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Dude, I love that you brought that up because my dad <laughs> brought up the same quote when he was on too. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean it's such a great one. Yeah. I, I mean when I did research on it, some people you know argued whether whether or not it was really Francis of Assisi who said that, mm-hmm. but. He was a great guy, so we'll give him credit anyway. Yep. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I always tell people, you know, you might be the only Jesus a person ever truly sees. Mm. Um, and you might be the only Bible a person ever truly reads. So although sharing God's message in love should be done, you know, whenever the opportunity presents itself, uh, the care and the methodology with which it is done might have significant effects on the efficacy and the fruitfulness um, of that. So, you know, in short, know your audience, be relational, and evangelize accordingly. I try to live by that. Yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, I think there, I've always had the approach too, is like there's so many different ways to evangelize, like you're talking mm-hmm. about, is like you can have that approach of just, nobody even like, nobody likes the approach of in your face. <laughs> no. Right, especially in this culture, you know, we live in a culture of, of this tolerance to everything except for evangelical Christianity. Yep. <laughs> when it comes to evangelical Christianity, it's intolerance. And so, yeah. it, and I think that's because 
you know, out of all world religions, we, we have been, you know, I don't want to use the word, but we've been the most pushy with our faith Mm -hmm. and rightfully so. I mean, we're trying to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, but because of that, we've been stigmatized as the people who are intolerant and therefore everyone should be intolerant of us, intolerant of everybody else. So, right. When somebody comes even to my door, like in Frostburg, Jehovah's witness would come to my door and I was like taken back, like, why are you here right now? (laughs) But then you ask the question of like, wait, why am I not where you are? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wait, I should be doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Why aren't I doing that? Uh, And then I answer it by saying, Oh, because, well, <laughs> there is a it's reason. Not, yeah, it's not received too well in, in this day and age. Yeah, and I mean it, that shouldn't be an excuse for us not to evangelize. Right. But it just the approach with which it's done needs to be carefully considered. Right. And times change too. I think if yeah, if we were back back in the day, it might have been taken differently. But now it's it's just like you don't do that. Um, yeah, it's in people's space, at least in the U.S., right? For sure, it can definitely be different in other other places, for sure. In West Western cultures, it's a, a Europe is also very yeah. similar. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you feel as if you get to see the ingenuity of the Creator in a deeper sense, being a biochemist and studying cells and and how they act? And definitely, you know, as a structural biologist, which is you know, I, I I think I ended up in structural biology because I always had an interest in engineering and and building and mechanics and how things like the infrastructure of things. But I didn't ever expect to be doing that with molecules. <laughs> but but yeah, as a structural biologist, you know, I get to observe God's ingenuity at the atomic and molecular levels. And when a non-Christian discovers something, they get to say, hey, wow, you know, a non-intelligent, non-sentient, impersonal, purposeless mother nature uh, produced this by chance, and it's taken mankind and a PhD to you know th- this long of however many years to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I get to say, "Wow, my God did that with direction and purpose, and with me in mind," um, and I have the opportunity to marvel at His work by observing just a small fraction of His greatness and the role that I get to play in it. So it's yeah. a very different perspective when you believe in God when. Versus when you don't, when you're trying to make scientific discoveries. Right. I think in other podcasts too, I've talked about like the beauty from a Christian perspective of going climbing and seeing the beauty from from a different perspective and being like, wow, God created this for a reason for us to enjoy it and to see him. And so I think that's the same way that you were talking about it here is just you get to see it in a different way. Yeah. I mean, you get to appreciate it more because there's a level of appreciation that like, if, if you just believe that randomness produced everything that you're observing, that kind of makes you look dumb because it's, it's so difficult for you to figure out. But if there is a designer behind it all, then you get to, uh, to appreciate and marvel at that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And throughout studying in the field, have you felt challenged? Oh, um, yeah, challenge is an understatement. Mm. Um, I mean, my brain never shuts off when it comes to science (laughs) and faith, um, which is why I have a such deep interest in apologetics. Mm. Um, I know, I don't know if you're into apologetics, but yeah, um, Robbie Zacharias is one of the first, uh, yeah, I'd ever heard of. And sadly, he just passed away. Yeah. It's uh, sad to hear. And then, um, I know before, before, a, f- a few years ago, I don't. Have you ever read anything by Nabil Qureshi? Mm-mm. Oh, so oh, he, yeah. Uh, the yeah. he was a Muslim, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Muslim um, who converted to Christianity. Yep. Um, wrote a great book uh, called "Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus," mm-hmm. um, and then I think he he either was or became sort of a student or an apprentice of Ravi. Um, traveled with him, spoke with him, and yeah. it's sad. Sadly, both of them succumbed um, to to cancer, I believe. Yeah, yep. but yeah, I mean, my my top apologist definitely. I mean, C.S. Lewis is definitely on oh. the top of my list. I mean, I love everything that guy has written. He's um, a man, <laughs> and he he was like an apologist without even trying. I, mean, I know. Like he, yeah, so he wasn't really like proactive about yeah. apologetic, yeah. but everything that he wrote was like spot on. Yeah, it was um, crazy. <laughs> Just reading Mere Christianity, I was, I was mind oh, yeah. blown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. anybody who's like, you know, interested in the Christian faith 
but it's kind of skeptical. I'm just like, just, just read mere Christianity. Yeah. And, and just, it'll um, get you thinking regardless. Yeah. <laughs> if, even if you want to reject it all, you'll still think about it. Yeah. And on YouTube, they have like these, uh, sketch videos that like, like, so someone's actually reading the book and someone's sketching like graphics while oh, they're reading what? it. It's so good. Like that's it, cool. it, yeah, it takes you to a deeper level of, of that, understanding. Is that yeah. on mere Christianity? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's mere, it's yeah, it's like they do chapter by chapter of mere Christianity. Wow, that's so cool! I have to look into yeah. that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but yeah, C.S. Lewis, um, Norman Geisler, um, who's who also passed away just a few years ago. Mm. Um, he wrote the book uh, "I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist" um, mm. with Frank Turek. That's probably one of my top recommended books to for um, skeptics or just someone learning to defend their faith. Um, William Craig, um, he's, he's excellent. Gary Habermas, he's like world expert on the resurrection. Um, he's written like book upon book upon book of just evidence for the resurrection. I think he's about to publish some like 500 page volume on this too. So it's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Hugh Ross. I don't know if you like Hugh Ross. Yeah. I love Hugh Uh, Ross. Astrophysicist. Yeah, he's really good. Um, I mean, he he's really like on the concordist side, meaning that like he thinks that um, everything that we observe in nature is um, like has some kind of biblical support. Mm-hmm. So he's always trying to say, "Oh, the Bible says this. This verse must describe." what we observe in nature, especially mm-hmm. in light of creation and things like that. So yeah. there are some, some points that I, I don't quite yeah. um, subscribe to um, from his view, but in terms of like his science and his, his, his faith in just being a man of God, like he's awesome. I mean, I yeah. love that guy. Yeah. There's always so. going to be things we disagree with, right. With every, yeah. everybody. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. Um, so anyway, back to the challenge. I mean, for most of my education, I, I was a young earth creationist as all the real Christians were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not anymore in, uh, but trying to reconcile science with a 6,000 year old earth presented by far my greatest intellectual challenges, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and as more and more things that came to light about my understanding of the natural world, the more it conflicted with my belief and understanding of scripture, particularly, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis, yep. um, so this this led me to a crossroads of sorts uh, regarding the tr- traditional views on creation. Uh, most people, I'd say, unfortunately, adopt this mutually exclusive mindset uh, that belief in science and belief in God are incompatible, mm-hmm. right? So it's either my Bible is right and science is wrong, or science is right and my Bible is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's a very false dichotomy, mm-hmm. and it's really not good to live by that because yep. um, we have to remember that if God exists that he is the author of both scripture and the natural world yep. um, and the natural world is what science aims to explain right and we also need to remember that all truth is God's truth by definition so if we believe in God as the ultimate creator that everything that we know and experience to be true must be a truth that came from the creator mm. Um, whether that truth is revealed directly to us through scripture or through indirectly through the world that he created, which by the way, he gave us the ability to observe and comprehend through empirical science. (laughs) (laughs) So if he didn't want science and and the laws of nature to be a factor in revelation, then he would have just written every single thing that we needed to know in the Bible. But he left Mm -hmm. a lot of things out of the Bible for us to discover. Right. Um, and since two truths cannot be contradictory, you know, by the law of non-contradiction, then something's got to give, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I see two possible approaches to the dilemma. So you either have blind faith, where you say the Bible is what it is, it says what it says, literally, and there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Or you take the approach of an intelligent or intellectual faith, um, where you say that you know, you acknowledge the fact that the Bible is an incredibly deep, mysterious, and complex set of ancient texts written by various people at different times, 
Um, and for thousands of years, its hearers and readers have spent much of their lives trying to best interpret and understand it, right? Yeah. And and we're still doing that. We don't have it all figured out. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be studying it. Right. You know, you know <laughs> people have PhDs in theology and Bible, exactly. and they're and they're still writing books on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So no matter how much you study the Bible, you can't plumb its depths. Like there's right. there, it's infinite. Um, it's the only book that's infinite, um, which is which is why it stands the test of time and why it's the most profound book or set of texts in, in this in this world. Yep. Um, and when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, uh, he responded with the Hebrew Shema, which they said daily, right? It's hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thou mm-hmm. shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, right? Um, historically, I think most Christians have spent their energy trying to love God with their heart and their soul. Um, but I think that we lack greatly in loving him with our mind, Mm. right? And loving God with your mind, which is again, part of the great commandment is to adopt and maintain an intellectual faith. And with an intellectual faith, your, your discrepancy of truth you know, between science and the Bible looks a lot different. Um, now you can say, well, either our interpretation of scientific data is wrong, or our interpretation of portions of scripture that may conflict with that scientific data are wrong. Mm. Um, but here you can see a distinction, right? Here, science and faith are not mutually exclusive, nor are they at war with one another. Instead, they're complementary. And where any discrepancy might emerge, um, then we must reinterpret the data of either side until both fit, since they both must be true. Um, so this really only becomes an issue, like for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, yep. uh, pretty much pre-Abraham, right? Um, there are many great books written you know, regarding the style and rhetoric and purpose of, of these particular books. Um, but I'll, I'll sum it up with a few key points. Um, number one, um, as, uh, one of my favorite authors, John Walton puts it, um, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Um, so we are not the target audience of the various genres of literature that, that are the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. The audience in each case varies and we shouldn't expect the Bible to speak to us in modern terms or to be interpreted through a modern worldview. Um, Instead, the proper exegesis and hermeneutics of Scripture, first and foremost, requires you to put yourself in the shoes uh, of the ones to whom the text was written. You know, what was their worldview? How did they think? What did they believe? What is the historical context? What's the literary context? Um, And I would say that the style of writing uh, of the different books of scripture plays a big factor in how we're supposed to interpret it. Right. hundred percent. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, you can't just read your Bible and read every book or every chapter in the same way that you read every other book and chapter because mm-hmm. they're different genres compiled. Um, and we have to keep those contexts in mind when reading it and understanding them. Right. And, you know, the Hebrews loved poetry, right? Because it started, as an oral tradition in the Bible was passed down orally. So poetry um, was a way, number one, for them to relate to the world in which they lived. And number two, it was easier for them to memorize and communicate if it was poetic. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so it was the most effective way for them to to basically understand these complex theological truths and Mm -hmm. be able to pass them along from generation to generation. And as Tim Mackey uh, from the Bible Project um, states, that as much as two-thirds of the Bible can be considered a form of poetry. Mm. Uh, and when I say poetry, I don't mean like roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are different genres of poetry, but um, they're, they're poetic in the sense that there is deeper meaning to the literal words that are used. So, mm. um, so, so then we have to ask, you know, who is the audience? Of Genesis 1 through 11 and what do we know about them um, so the the ancient Near East or ANE you might see in literature um, they had a very different worldview than we do today I mean prior to the Israelites encounter with the one true God 
they were pagans, just like their pagan neighbors. Mm-hmm. And their, their beliefs about the gods and the universe, um, which were always hand in hand, um, were strongly influenced um, by those pagan neighbors, uh, namely the Egyptians, Sumerians, and, and Babylonians. Um, they started off with no written language, and their spoken language was very archaic and undeveloped, right? Yep. And as far as ancient cosmology goes, um, you know, like what, what did they understand about the intricacies of Earth and the universe? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they believed that the Earth was flat. And, you know, unfortunately, some people still believe that. <laughs> um, they believe that, that the earth was um, held up by pillars. Um, you know, you read in the Psalms, like the four pillars of the earth. You know, that's where that language comes from. Um, those, and those pillars held up the flat earth and they extended, you know, into the chaotic deep waters below. Um, and, and that separated them from the underworld in the great abyss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they also believed... Uh, in a solid dome, you know, so when you go outside and you look up at the sky, the sky looks like a dome, right? Mm -hmm. Because of, you know, optical effects and such. And and because the earth is spherical. Um, But that solid dome, they had a name for it, which was translated as the firmament. And in some Bible translations, it might actually still say the firmament. Um, But the firmament literally was a solid dome um, that they believed separated the waters above. You know, this was the ocean of heaven from the waters below, which mm-hmm. is the ocean of the earth. And you read, you know, in Genesis chapter one on day two, that's what God did. He separated the waters above from the waters below. Yeah. Um, and, and this is kind of where they got that idea in terms of the cosmology. And so beyond that solid dome was the heavenly realms, right? This is where the gods lived who controlled and operated the universe and opened these windows in the firmament now and again to let water come down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, having that in mind and knowing that ancient Near Eastern cosmology, um, you know, when the Bible speaks in those contexts, is it wrong? No. Um, It was written to an ancient Near Eastern audience. (laughs) Right, right. So what what does that mean? Um, So it means that we have to interpret it as an ancient Near Easterner would, right? It, it, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, nor was it written with a modern scientific audience in mind. You know, things like physics, chemistry, and biology didn't exist in the formal sense then, right? <laughs> they didn't understand Newton's laws of motion, the theory of gravitation, or plate tectonics. So we shouldn't expect, therefore, that the Bible would address any matters of scientific understanding of the natural world, mm. including you know, how God created it. Um, and importantly, they were not concerned with how God created the world, um, nor was God concerned with communicating it to an audience who wasn't able to understand it. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> but, you know, some people will say like, well, you need to take the text literally for what it says. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the most quote unquote literal reading of the text is to read it the way an ancient Near Easterner would have read it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's in its historical and cultural context. Yeah. So when you do this, you come to learn that Genesis one in particular is not really concerned with with what we call material origins or material ontology, mm-hmm. um, which you know concerns things like where everything came from and how it was made. Um, but rather, in the ancient Near East, they they th- they thought of things more with a functional ontology, which is why these things were made. And what is their purpose in, in relation to humanity? Um, and if you want to read more about this, um, I highly recommend John Walton's uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to go too far off in a tangent. Um, he does talk about this, his um, temple inauguration um, view of, of Genesis, but I thought that might be kind of too far in the weeds for this podcast but uh, if you want to talk about it we can but no yeah no, let's we... let's talk a little bit about that <laughs> okay so <laughs> nothing's too so, far <laughs> all right cool well so he, he so john walton is he's an ancient near eastern scholar so mm-hmm. um he is a um expert in in literature and Me- mesopotamian literature um and he argues that the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest uh, would have been understood as uh, temple-like rhetoric. And what I mean by that is that so temples were very central to ancient Near Eastern life. Um, 
and so it, it, this is not just like we're not talking just the Israelites here. This is sort of pre-Israel. Um, all of the ancient Near Eastern, even the, the pagans, basically everything was with had a temple. Every god had a temple, and each temple was sort of like the gateway between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they worshipped, right? Um, so anyway, the the, the temples were central. Uh, to their lifestyle, and, and records show that after a temple was constructed constructed in the ancient Near East, um, it became functional over the course of a seven-day inauguration. So they would install these different functionaries or attributes of the temple, um, and, and each day was sort of like, okay, this becomes functional, this becomes functional. And then on the seventh day, um, the deity um, to whom that temple was, you know, um, built for, uh, would take up rest in the temple Mm. from which he presided over his people who were his servants. Um, so it's very plausible then in, in consistent with A&E culture and literature, um, that the creation story is depicted as God constructing and organizing, um, his cosmic temple, right. Mm -hmm. Um, center of which, where he then rests, is the Garden of Eden, right? So we, the Garden of Eden was was the very first temple, um, and it's, God, when He was giving the words to you know to Israel in, in writing these scriptures, um, He was saying, you know what, you're very much like your neighbors, so I'm going to use some of those characteristics of of how you think and what you think mm-hmm. um, to show you who I am. When you understand it fully, I am the one true God, and I don't have like this little temple that you construct. My temple is is essentially the cosmos, right? Yeah. My, you can't contain me, right? Then so this this was um, kind of waging war against the pagan views of individual gods having different roles in, in their individual temples, mm-hmm. and you know we have in the Psalms where. You know, God says, um, you know, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, right? The, the footstool was, was an actual part of, of the temple. Um, and so there's, there's imagery embedded in scripture that, that has temple language. And I, I really believe that because the ancient Near Eastern pre-Israelites were a temple-driven culture, that God used uh, temple language and rhetoric to explain the creation event, right? Six six days I orchestrated this temple, and then on the seventh day, just like a deity always does, takes up rest in the temple. Mm. And um, and, and God was with mankind in the the holy of holies of that temple, which which was the Garden of Eden. Um, And then later, once man was exiled, that holy of holies made itself into the Ark of the Covenant as they were mobile, and then in the Holy of Holies, um, in the tabernacle or, or temple, so when Solomon built the temple, and then ultimately Jesus, which was Emmanuel, God with us, and then finally um, the Holy of Holies became the heart and soul of every human being who invites God, right? So we see this this restoration in, uh, in of temple um, uh, imagery starting with the Garden of Eden and going all the way to the heart of mankind where God resides. So I know that's, it's very complex, but when you, when you read the book and then you read Genesis one and you kind of go back and forth, it really makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I think there are some, some holes that we don't quite fully understand, Mm -hmm. but I think this is probably the best understanding of Genesis one that anyone has has provided. And I think it's because it's an understanding that's born out of the context of the people group who lived during that time. So, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, I love how in depth you went in that actually, cause it's really important. And one of the, one of the biggest things my pastor from my church here said to me, is just like, we don't realize here in the u.s that it's just like oh jesus wasn't american though like we gotta (laughs) we gotta understand that we gotta take it from that perspective so i'm glad you went so in depth in that yeah i think that was really important so thank you for that no problem that was awesome uh what is your take on evolutionary theories ah yeah another big one (laughs) um 
<laughs> so I would say to summarize everything that I've said above, you know, right? Yeah. Gen- Genesis 1 through 11 in particular contains real history described by rhetorical means with figurative language, but for theological purposes. Mm. Um, in the step from a young earth to old earth creationism for me was quite easy, I think, um, because science has unambiguously demonstrated the age of the earth and the universe um, through a, a myriad of scientific disciplines. So, um, but the, I would say the step toward evolution uh, was a much greater step for me, not necessarily because of the science, but because of the implications and maybe the stigma that came with, oh my gosh, you believe that and you're a Christian, right? <laughs> um, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, I, I'm a Christian who affirms evolution mm-hmm. as the mechanism by which God created all living things. Mm. You know, in fact, I couldn't think of a better way for God to do it um, other than just snapping his fingers, right? Yeah. But, you know, people say, well, evolution is just a theory. Well, so was gravity and music. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people have no problem accepting the theory of gravity or music theory. Right. Um, but so here's the definition of a scientific theory. It's a coherent group of propositions formulated to explain a group of facts or phenomena in the natural world and, quote, repeatedly confirmed through experiment or observation. So in other words, a scientific explanation is given the name a theory precisely because it's overwhelmingly supported by evidence. (laughs) Um, So evolution, um, just like the age of the earth, uh, is becoming more futile and perhaps more harmful to our witness to deny it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, many notable theologians, both past and present, uh, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, (laughs) N.T. Wright, Tim Keller, uh, just to name a few, you know, either affirm evolution or at least um, affirm that it's not incompatible with Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a, a poll from uh, Pew Research just last year, I think in February, showed that more than 60% of evangelicals affirm evolution. Um, so the key differences lie in the causal agent, right? It's not, it's not whether evolution is true or conflicts with scripture, it's, it's, it's who was the causal agent behind it. Was it some unnatural or natural, some natural force or some supernatural force, Mm -hmm. right? So the atheist believes, you know, everything came from nothing, um, ex nihilo, right? Mm -hmm. Which is weird because that's a scientific impossibility in and of itself for everything to come from nothing. Right. Um, which then randomly produced everything as we know it. Um, whereas a theist who embraces evolution, uh, believes that all matter and energy were created by a supernatural God who programmed his creation to unfold, uh, in a way that utilizes the laws of nature to go along with it. Um, a a design which happened to include the process of evolution. So I don't really have any qualms with accepting evolution as one of one of many parts of God's design in creation. Yeah. Uh, especially if that's where the evidence points. For sure. Um, so, you know, then someone will ask, well, okay, so are we just, you know, special mo- evolved monkeys? Like, no, well, first and foremost, we didn't evolve from monkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we share, we share a common ancestor. But we didn't evolve from monkeys. Yeah. Um, but as far as human beings are concerned, um, you know, we are God's ultimate creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, into whom he breathed his life-giving spirit and with whom he would personally interact and to whom he gave special dominion and purpose. And I think even in light of evolution, that still makes human beings set apart from the rest of creation, which is why they got their own special um, excerpt um, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, and then how their uh, divine, ultimately divine purpose in their interaction and relationship with God unfolded through the course of the entire Bible. So, mm. um, so, so evolution, in my view, doesn't really diminish my, um, my special creation in terms of what I mean to God yeah. and how I'm set apart from the rest of creation. I still think that um, 
regardless of where the atoms and molecules and cells and blood you know came from <laughs> over the course of time um i still have the you know god's life-giving spirit in me and i have eternal purpose right. and that alone is is really all i need to be set apart from the rest of god's creation yeah and i think one of the biggest things here to talk about is just to kind of um put a view of like these things matter yes but when it comes to the christian faith your salvation is not set in whether you believe in evolution or not right (laughs) so i think a lot of people get stuck on that it's like if when it comes down to it in terms of being a christian it's not a huge deal whether you believe in young earth old earth it's fun to talk about though and that's why we do it yeah (laughs) but a lot of people i think i think one of the biggest points is just like don't get stuck on that right (laughs) right and i and i think the key word that you said there is talk about it right not not argue not um shun or you know criticize um But you're right. I mean, we talked about this, you know, a little earlier in the podcast about uh, mutual exclusivity, where it's either this or that. Um, right. And and there's nothing in science or scientific observation or or evidence that would directly negate um, anything in the Bible that would question its its infallibility or um, divine inspiration. And so. Right. Um, Needless to say, you can you can study the world and you can study the scriptures and be perfectly okay by using your mind mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and worshiping God with it um, by trying to come to the best understandings that you can and, and best interpretations that you can given the mind that God gave you. So. Yeah, and uh, actually the podcast I was telling you I was listening to with Biologus this morning, I love that Timothy Keller was like, uh, he just made the point to the audience. He was just like, guys, me and Francis Collins don't agree on everything, but we can still be friends, right? It's like, right. <laughs> it's like that's okay that we're friends, but we disagree on things. It's, it is, yeah. it is possible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, we were able to sit down and talk this morning. Um, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And I think God is definitely using you and. Uh, I'm happy how this all came together, you know, like <laughs> Mr. Brain was just like, uh, hey, we know uh, we have a family member actually who works for the NIH and is in cancer research. And I was like, what? <laughs> I got to get him on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. Welcome to the family. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, thanks again for being on. Absolutely. Take care, brother. Take care. What's going on, Chew Creek Podcast listeners? It's your host, Steve Riley. If you enjoyed this episode, please help this ministry grow by throwing down some stars on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the podcast. That'd be cool, too. I don't know. It's up to you. I also have some exciting news to share. Uh, We'll be launching a Chew Creek Ministries website soon where y'all will be able to purchase some Chew Creek Podcast merch. I'm talking stickers and shirts merch. And being a nonprofit podcast, uh, this will really help us grow and go a direction where I've wanted to go for a really long time, be able to teach others about Jesus Christ in a bigger sense. So we're really excited for that to start up, coming out in a few weeks. Keep your eye out for that, and we will catch you all next time.